G'day. I'm Paul, and this is my wife, Beth. Hi. Um, I wasn't listening to what he said, but um, we're from Chester Hill. Does anyone know where Chester Hill is? Yeah, sweet. Um, Southwest Sydney, sort of close to Bankstown. Um, we've got five kids. Um, the church we're in is pretty multicultural, so about 20 different nationalities. Um, yeah, you can ask questions about our context later, if you like. Um, probably just to start with, we were having a conversation this morning to say that this seminar is a bit weird and we don't really know what we're doing. Um, and anyway, Beth sort of articulated the weirdness quite well. So tell us, Beth, what we're doing. Um, yeah, we were just reflecting this morning, I guess, and wanted to flag, this is not exactly like your normal kind of cross-cultural uh, seminar. So I was thinking, like, when you think about cross-cultural ministry, I think of people like Paul's parents. He, uh, they went to Papua New Guinea and they learned the language and they, you know, wrote papers on if it was a high or low context, what they were afraid of, what their, you know, religion looked like, all that kind of thing, and were immersed in it and then reached out to those people around them in a really accessible way. But our context is different to that. <laughs> we are trying to reach multiple cultures at one time in one place with one team. Um, and I think our journey has been that, or our kind of our big thing is that... Hobby horse, maybe? Or? Hobby horse, yeah. everyone has one. <laughs> it's ours. Um, yeah, when you do multicultural evangelism and... Uh, you think you're doing cross-cultural evangelism, the danger is that actually people are not understanding what you're saying. Um, so you're assuming that they are understanding more than they are and you're assuming that the gospel is penetrating their hearts and their minds and, uh, yeah, maybe maybe not. I don't know. So, yeah, that's uh, what we want to do today is think what are some strategies, not just for cross-cultural, what's strategies for multicultural, reaching multiple people who are different from us at one time, yeah. Yeah, which is probably what Australia is becoming. Um, so just to, just to get us warmed up, we'll do a lot of talking, but a, bit, a couple of points of interaction as well and then some questions at the end. Um, but just turn to the person next to you um, and answer this question. Three, your top three reasons. Why do you think multicultural evangelism is important? Yeah, why, why do you guys reckon multicultural evangelism is important? Talk to your neighbour, just get, get yourself thinking about... out. Move away from lunch into multiculturalism. All right, good, done. Top three, that's good. We won't we won't feedback just yet, but um, I'm going to. You've got an sorry, you've got an outline there. If if you don't have a outline, I think Kevin probably has a few more of them, um, or you can get it on the app as well. Uh, there's some slides up here. Um, I'm going to hand over to Beth. She's going to kick us off with a few things, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, just starting with some reflections on what diversity is. Um, yeah, I'm not going to start uh, with a definition of, of culture. Uh, you know, rather, I think what I'm going to do is just say every human that has ever been born on this planet is different. And the reason why is because when God made us, uh, he made us as people who can't transcend time or place. So that wasn't an accident. It wasn't a bad thing. Uh, creation says it was a good thing. But in practice, it means, you know, 
I grew up over here, you grew up over there, we have very different ideas of how society works, how to interact with it. And people can change, but they will never be omnipresent or all-seeing. We're always going to be embodied, limited beings. So because of that fact, everybody's different. Um, but then you, the other part of that is that that difference has limitations too. So if you think of what it means to be human, at the core of what it means to be human is this enormous commonality. So uh, every single person is created in God's image. Every single person is a fallen sinner. Every single person desperately needs Jesus. And those profound ontological truths unite the human race. So, yeah, I think when I think about difference, I think humans are really tricky because at the core of who we are, um, we both have this really embodied diversity, but also this really deep commonality. So uh, one of my favourite sayings for um, multi-ethnic evangelism is, humans are simply humans, but humans are not simple. <laughs> um, and I think that summarises it really well. And as we were touching on before, the key message we want to share today is people are just, they're not simple. They are humans, but it's not simple. And that's important to us because when you ignore that detail, we think that you think people understand more than they do. And that, uh, the result of that is that you end up with a lot of miscommunication. Even the best intentions in the world, you're going to end up with uh, not reaching diverse people. So, yeah, particularly, I guess, we're thinking of uh, reaching non-English-speaking people, but much wider than that, uh, first-generation migrants, refugees, minority groups, different religions, they're all very, very different. Um, I, yeah, I thought I'd just start with a short story. It's from uh, a missionary. Missionaries love stories. Uh, but this one, this, this, this is a good one. It's about a monkey and a fish. You've probably heard of it. And there was a monkey and he saw a fish down on the beach. It had been washed up by a storm and it was flapping around on the, on the shore. So the monkey, who was kind, went down and he picked up the fish and he, he wanted to help the fish. So he carried the fish and took it up his tree and the fish died. So yeah, it's morbid, I know. But <laughs> the point is, good intentions are not enough. Uh, we have to understand difference. Otherwise, as we said, Jesus won't be proclaimed clearly and people won't be saved. Um, so, yeah, I was going to just... Uh, Adam was going to share a story also maybe about some cultural misunderstandings that uh, he's come across or miscommunication. So, yeah. Give him a clap, I reckon. Yeah. yeah. Hi everyone, uh, my name's Adam and I'm uh, pastoring Cross and Crown in Melbourne. I'll share a bit more about that later on uh, in the workshop. But I'd just uh, like to, uh, for you to imagine for one moment that you're walking into a church for the first time. Uh, the service has started, the singing's over and we're well into the announcements and prayers. And the first sound that you hear is the cry of a baby and the screams of young children. And the first sight that you see is kids running through the pews, playing with toys and chasing each other around the hall. I wonder, what's your, what's your first thought? You might think, wow, isn't this great? You know, all my non-Christian friends have young families. This is a church where I can bring them with their kids. They'll make friends with other families. They'll feel, they'll feel welcome, and they and their kids can hear all about Jesus. Well, at the same time, uh, a second-generation Asian-Australian family walks into your church, 
and they hear the cries of the baby and the screams of the children. They see kids running uh, through the pews, playing with toys and chasing each other around the hall. I wonder, can you guess what their first thought is? What are their parents doing? Why won't they discipline their children? How can I bring my non-Christian friends to this church? They'll think that we have no respect for God and that we can't teach our children what's right and how can they hear about, about Jesus over all this noise. Then the pastor comes up and greets you. Oh, how's it going? At our church, we really value children because God values children. Isn't it great that our kids get to run free? It must have been so different back at your Asian church. I mean, you were born here, so you're pretty much Aussie, right? So the young second-generation Asian guy looks at the pastor and says, huh, huh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I, I think it shows a few things. Uh, miscommunication happens not just through our words but through our practice. Uh, the same ministry practice can communicate very different messages to two different cultures and actually two good messages to two different cultures. It's easy to wrongly conflate a biblical principle with a particular cultural expression of that principle and it just uh, one for the personal angst as a second-generation person. Uh, Second-generation migrant cultures assimilate some aspects of the local culture but unknowingly retain many aspects of their parent culture. And so this is one of the issues about multi-ethnic evangelism. We're not dealing with just many diverse homogenous cultures. We're actually dealing with a melting pot of different cultures that mix and are hybrid cultures in different ways. Cool. I was just thinking... um uh, you guys probably have your own stories of miscommunication with Google Translate. Have you done that? Um, we had one, the classic one, the other day at church. Um, we had an Arabic Bible study and took a photo. I took a photo, put it on Facebook, and so an English speaker wrote, um, super duper like, you know, just saying this is really cool. Um, and then at church on Sunday, this, this Arabic man was, just came to me really angrily and said, who is this woman? I said, it was just Joyce. Said, is she crazy? I was like, what is going on here? Anyway, he put it into um, Google Translate and it, it came up something as, um, yeah, super, uh, was it? Was it? Imposter and deceiver. Yeah, imposter and deceiver. <laughs> so it's like, who's, so he thought that she was saying that all these Arabic people are imposters and deceivers. But uh, anyway, so we had to do some Google Translate, don't use it. Oh, well, it can be, can be handy, can't it? Sorry, I digress, keep going. Point is, uh, miscommunication, it's a big problem. Um, so how are we going to reach diverse people at one time? How are we going to do it? Well, we thought we're going to start with uh, just spending some time in God's Word. And this has been, uh, yeah, to be honest, we've been confused about this for a long time, uh, many years. And don't want to sound rude, but when people would uh, talk about their, their strategy from Scripture, always felt like maybe things were being imported that I couldn't see and it just would can make me more confused. Um, so this is something we've really wrestled with and also because when we, are, when we have a weak theological framework, we've become really wobbly on the decisions that we've had to make. So we've just convinced that this is really important and what we have decided to do, just to streamline things to make them short, Paul's going to do a brief kind of biblical theology of kind of the interplay between unity and diversity in Scripture and then we'd try and boil it down to, to a principle, just a guiding principle, and then building up on that the kind of model that we've, uh, we're trying to go with. Yep. Cool. So 
As Beth said, we're going to probably spend about 10 minutes um, just talking about the, this, what the Bible says about it. Um, and as Beth touched on, we, we learn a lot about humans from the first 11 chapters of Genesis, don't we? And it, it kind of establishes what unites humanity, our core anthropology, as created in God's image, fallen and needing hope. Um, you're right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just press the button. Um, that establishes what unites humanity. Uh, you know, our core anthropology is created in God's image, fallen and needing hope. I said that today. But um, that's about unity. But, but does it say anything about diversity? That's what we want to think about. Um, Beth already touched on how it shows that we are embodied beings and therefore diverse. But, of course, a really... Um, interesting story, right? I just preached on it the other day. Um, in the first few chapters of the Bible is um, Babel. And um, that was the moment, wasn't it, where you, you go from having a single language to having 6,800 languages uh, that we have today. Um, I reckon at the heart of any culture is their heart language. So this is kind of a big, a big event, isn't it, in, in Genesis? And it's in that section, of course, in uh, chapters 3 to 11, which is all about sin, it's all about judgment, there's glimmers of hope, you know, but um, it's meant to be heavy and um, it, it deals with judgment, just like the other parts in that section there as well. And you know, the story is very simple, isn't it? Man says, hey, we wanna, you know, let's get together, build something to make our name great, and we all know that God's name is the one that's great, so God comes down, confuse their language, stop them achieving their evil purposes. Um, and thus begins why we're doing this seminar, the long, frustrating, you know, and long and frustrated history of working with different languages and different cultures, whether that be for good or evil purposes. Um, and I don't know if you've asked this, no doubt you have. It's therefore, you know, ah, like classic question, isn't it? But are languages um, bad? Uh, the, you know, the heart of diversity, are they a bad thing? Are they judgment? Yes, I think the fact, I always remember, the fact that I can't speak Arabic, I wish I could, the fact that I can't understand Vietnamese, I should, I should be reminded of judgment. Um, but of course, uh, as we do that, it's also a, it's a merciful thing too, isn't it? Um, it stopped man in their wrong quest to worship the wrong person. Uh, it puts humanity in their proper place. And it shows us only God can make a humanity that can reach the heaven and not our own efforts. I want to keep remembering that. And of course, you, know, you see that in Pentecost, uh, Acts 2, and everyone's speaking and understands these foreign languages. It shows that God did create that new man who could reach heaven, and that was through Jesus' death and resurrection. That's kind of jumping ahead, though, back to Genesis chapter 11. Um, uh, Genesis 11 is really just mostly bleak. Um, it, it's, yeah, it's depressing. But then I think we've heard, you know, Genesis 12 mentioned about seven times this conference. That's, that's, that's why Genesis 12 is so important, isn't it? Beautiful purple passage uh, of God's promises to Abraham. And part of it is that God will bless all people on earth through Abraham. So why then? Again, I'm sure you've asked this. Why? If God wants to bless all people, does he seem so racist? I wonder if any of your people have asked you that. Um, you know, the rest of the Bible, he chooses one nation, draws them out, his precious possession above all others. 
Um, I know you know this, but let's just be reminded of it. Um, he blesses the nations through working through them. Egypt is a great example, isn't it? They came to know the Lord in powerful ways as God saves Israel through plagues and the Red Sea. And then the law, of course, is meant to be this, meant to make Israel this microcosm to the other nations to show them who God was and draw outsiders in. And then you keep going through the Old Testament and there's a few other outsiders that are engrafted and there's hints and prophecies through the Old Testament picking up on this idea of blessing of all the nations. But you get to the end of the Old Testament and God's people are still relatively monocultural, aren't they? Um, but, as you know, it's all been setting the scene for what's to come next. And Jesus is the game changer. He, of course, started his ministry with crossing a huge culture. He steps down from heaven, humbling himself. Philippians 2 is a brilliant passage. Really costly. Um, and, you know, his, you look at his ministry, it was primarily to Israel, but he did bring blessing to some foreigners like the Samaritan and the Canaanite woman in John 4 and Matthew 15. But he hadn't forgotten about the nations. Um, and we know that because as his mission developed, we understand the full implications for the nations and most obviously in the Great Commission when he says, okay, I've done what I've come to do. Now you go and make disciples of all nations and I'll be with you as you go. And uh, uh, this mission he gives to his disciples is, of course, still his mission that he's sovereign over and we see continued through Acts and beyond. When we get to Acts, though... Um, Acts kind of starts to address a lot of the issues about diversity in church, doesn't it? And so in the initial stages, when the gospel crosses over from the Jews to the Gentiles, um, you know, trying to work out what that looks like, the Council of Jerusalem, trying to figure that out, this fellowship between Jews and Gentiles, and that famous sermon in Acts 17, where Paul addresses the intellectual um, Athenian Greeks in a way that seems quite contextual. So he's figuring all this out, trying to contextualize it. He's traveling to places and, and reached many cultures and, you know, said uh, himself, he became all things to all men to win a few. So just like Jesus crossed cultures, Paul also goes to great lengths uh, to reach people crossing divides that are hard. And uh, it is hard, isn't it? Um. It's, I don't think it's something that comes naturally. Maybe that's a judgment part. but um, Because you're, you're stepping into another person's world and it's very disorientating. Um, maybe if you haven't felt that, I don't know if you've done cross-cultural ministry, but it's very disorientating. It's very humbling. Uh, you're putting your own preferences uh, um, aside, which is very unpleasant. But it shows profound love which is powerful isn't it and so these early churches right they're they're born in very different ways but with one message christ crucified and that one message offended all cultures and it did it in different diverse ways so 1 corinthians 1 says jews demand signs and greek look for wisdom but we preach christ crucified a stumbling block to the jews and foolishness to the gentiles 
So we need to adapt to adapt for every culture, but it's the same truth that will change and critique cultures too. Now, we are all rightly terrified of critiquing cultures today because of our history of racism, but yeah, the Bible does it well, doesn't it, and on different grounds. And uh, our responsibility is to speak biblical truths in accessible ways, which in practice... Um, I think usually or very often looks like just us sneaking our own cultural ideas in there. And it's very difficult to do wisely, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, anyway, I've almost, almost done this tour of, of um, the Bible, but in a short period of time, the new church becomes very diverse, doesn't it, through Acts. Um, but also there's this big emphasis on unity, so it's born from the same message that Jesus is Lord, Ephesians 2, that you know, epic verse talks about Jesus' power to make one new humanity, make strangers citizens of heaven. Um, so by the way, just aside, of course, it's talking about Jews and Gentiles um, rather than Vietnamese and Arabic. Um, so we don't want to twist it too much to prove our multicultural point, but we'll do that a little bit. Um, but clearly all Gentiles are part of this new humanity Uh, the true people of God. And as we said before, we know the new diverse church shares a common end of being one gathered people around the throne in heaven. So, basically what I'm saying is the birth of the church was messy. Uh, It was uniquely unified, but also diverse. And the Bible isn't ashamed about diversity in churches. Um, There's passages that talk about that diversity, how it strengthens unity, right? Ephesians chapter 4. Again, it's talking about gifts and not race, but I think our gifts are not completely devoid of our unique embodied situation. So that plays a part too. Um, At the very least, though, you can say it's clear that God likes diversity and that wisdom tells us that diversity strengthens unity. Yeah. So 1 Corinthians 12 um, uses the body parts. Um, but if you came to the, the TED Talk on Tuesday, whenever it was, we could use our own analogy from, um, for biodiversity. When we lose species from our environment, uh, if the, the effects ripple out and they're devastating. Diverse environments are actually healthy environments. So go back right to the beginning and Beth kind of said, well, diversity leads to miscommunication and it does, it's so painful, Google Translate, all that sort of stuff. Um, But more than that, um, so, you know, how can it also be an essential component of our health? Um, Do we think diverse and complex teams are strong teams or one where there's miscommunication? Well, of course, the answer is complicated and I think reflects the complex view of diversity that we briefly surveyed throughout Scripture. Um, diversity is, is part of embodiment, which is good, but then deepened as judgment for sin at Babel, but also in God's mercy preparing for God's uniting work in Jesus. And then in the New Testament, it causes lots of conflict and difficulty in the new church, but it's amazing testimony of God's reconciling work in Jesus. Great. What do we do with all that? Is the question. 
Um, I just try and draw some of that together in our guiding principle. If I can work this. Oh, here we go. Um, yeah, so we're basically, we've tried to articulate these ideas with this axis up here of the two sides, unity and diversity. So diversity, we mean um, practices that are more accessible. So I can't, you know... Um, a Chinese Bible is not accessible to me. We need an English one. We need diversity of resources, things like that. So you, you have this axis, two dimensions, pretty simple. Both things are in the Bible, both things are true. The part where it uh, gets interesting is when you start to think about the relationship between them. So um, I'll try and explain. Firstly, the first thing you notice is that unity and diversity are diametrically opposed. Uh, one will always take from the other. So unity will always erode accessibility. Accessibility will always erode um, unity. So think for the example, if you grabbed a bunch of really diverse people, pulled them out of their context, throw them together in a you know, life course or Christian Explains, uh, so that might kind of work in a context up here on the coast where the diversity is less complex, but where we are, it, uh, it generally won't work. So for starters, half the people won't speak English. Uh, they would have very different religious baggage. They'd have different views of leadership, different groups of views of group dynamics, all that kind of thing, and it would just be too weird for everyone <laughs> and no one would understand anything. We've tried that. We've tried it, yeah. <laughs> but if we give up on that, right, and we say, no, no, let's do accessibility. We're going to meet one-to-one -one with every one of those people. We're going to send in someone who understands their culture, who's learnt their language. Well, A, we will never reach our community in a thousand years. <laughs> and B, uh, we're not going to help them access the wider resources of the wider church. Um, so you need both. But they always... Uh, a competition with each other, so they're um, competing to diminish. So, yeah, that's the first bit. Um, however, it gets crazier, right? Because at the very same time of this happening, they're also strengthening one another. So the general and the particular in most systems have this symbiotic relationship where they actually empower each other too. So... Like a secular example is Japan, they came up with this business term called glocalization. It's not globalization, it's global, so a mix of global and local. And they figured out that global business can benefit from the local and the local can visit from the global and they're figuring out ways that they can help each other. And then missionaries cottoned onto this and they were like, this is great, and they ran with it, not always helpfully, but actually there's something really cool about it that we were talking about before in um, how unity and diversity work really well together to, to do strengthen each other. So when you think about working with different cultures, uh, if you're quick to listen, you're slow to speak, you still have to be very discerning, but you actually sharpen each other. They sharpen you, you sharpen them. And a diverse team can see more. Uh, they have more depth. They're able to reach a wider group of diverse people. Um, so, yeah, it kind of looks like this. We have union diversity. They're competing to diminish, but they're also building to grow. <laughs> so you have these two principles, this kind of really complicated relationship. Um, if you're confused, yes, it, it is confusing. But for us, this is where the rubber hits the road. We've always got all these ideas floating around in our head, 
there's no silver bullet about what that looks like, but rather it's how do we minimise the negative aspects and really maximise and go with the positive ones um, and then build a model around that. So that's the principle that we're trying. Now you can try it. Um, we'll give you we'll a go to, oh yeah, you've got the things here. Go to the next one. So what we want you to do, can you read that? It's pretty small, you might need your glasses, but um, um, we've just given a scenario here, just, just a hypothetical sort of church in Chester Hill um, that, uh, have a read of it. Oh, let me read it. You're a leader of an English-speaking church with approximately 150 members from 15 different countries attending each Sunday. Whilst being diverse, half of the congregation were born and raised in Australia with English as their first language. During the week, the church runs midweek Bible studies in different languages. Recently, the Chinese and Arabic Bible studies have grown to about 20 members each. A majority of these members speak little to no English and have recently arrived in Australia. However, despite not being able to understand a lot because of the language and cultural barriers, they all really enjoy coming to church every Sunday because people are really friendly. It's a great opportunity to learn some more English and they learn new Western ways of corporately worshipping God. As a leader, you're committed to all church members growing in maturity in Christ. They hear God's word taught. And you're worried that the Chinese and Arabic members aren't maturing because of the language and culture barriers. You need to come up with a plan. Your church is probably exactly like this. Um, what I want you to do is just grab a couple of people around you and just in five minutes, come up with a plan of what you're going to do and allow those, these questions in your handout there. Um, where can you, can you see them there? Where can you see unity being sacrificed for accessibility? Where can you see accessibility being sacrificed for unity? Where can you see unified whole strengthened, you'd see unified whole strengthening a particular culture? And where can you see a particular culture strengthening the unified whole? So basically what Beth was talking about there. Does that make sense? So go away, talk about it. what are you going to do here, and then use those questions there to kind of guide your answer um, to make sure you, you've thought through those things. Yeah? We'll feed back a few things in about five minutes. So you don't have long, but go to it. Um, do you want to, yeah, what, what do you reckon? What, do, what have you come up with? I think the, the, you're meant to speak into the mic for the sake of recording there, um, yeah anyone yeah, what, did someone, someone tell us what you've been discussing yeah so we said an obvious one which would be ESL having ESL classes or something like that which is actually benefiting those um, Chinese and Arabic members who might want to learn English as well Okay. Um, and that brings unity in that you're all kind of learning the same language um, and they can actually listen to things and hear what's going on in the main service and a part of that could be having transcripts for sermons as well. Okay. So this, the teaching's accessible. Sweet. Who has ESL at their church? Everyone. Awesome. I, my, I thought, just as a thought, would add to that um, at our church we do use translation uh, in headsets, but even with translation, you'll be surprised how much is lost in translation. <laughs> yeah, I, I, had a, I, was telling, I was telling Adam before, I read the Bible with this African guy and I preached on, uh, on Genesis 3 a little while ago and we did Genesis 3 in, in our Bible study, one-to-one. And um, I said, oh, how was, how was the sermon the other day? And uh, he said, oh, it was great. It was, I loved it. Uh, you know, it was really inspiring and da-da-da-da. I said, wow, I must be a great preacher. Um, anyway, and then we read Genesis 3, and at the end, um, uh, 
I said, oh, have you ever read that before? And he said, no, I've never read that before. He's not a Christian. I've never read that before. I said, have you ever heard anything about it? No, I've never heard anything about it. I was like, are you sure? I'm sure. This is the first time I've ever read it. Uh, so I did preach on it two days ago. Oh, okay. And then there was a, a cross-cultural awkwardness where I shouldn't have said that. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Anyway, something else, yeah. Uh, we do it live, so we give we give the translator the manuscript to to work on it, and they just sit in the back corner in Arabic and Chinese, and just speak into a headset, and then everyone's got these little earpieces, so but, they can still sit and. But they take a few days to translate it; it's not on the spot. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. so you send it to them on Thursday night. In theory. In theory. <laughs> um, just keep doing that, even though it's hard. We've been doing translation in our church. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to hear that someone else is struggling with the same things, um, uh, in, including like getting preaching done days early. It's one of the worst great things about this wonderful problem. Um, we were talking about uh, community groups being uh, and, and that fear of not quite knowing what's going on in the groups where, uh, say, so you guys as lead pastors not knowing the language, so not knowing what's being taught. Uh, and we as a group were just were talking about the value of training potentially bilingual people or developing those leaders uh, as as a as a focus because of the impossibility of really tracking discipleship. But community groups in the church just so huge to um, you know seeing the church grow in maturity. So um, yeah, just focusing on the leadership of those groups. Great. Yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit more at the end as well. Thanks. That's great. Yeah, go for it. Sorry, just a question, a clarifying one. So in the guiding principle, we've got unity and diversity. Are we talking about unity and diversity in terms of practice? Uh, yeah, sorry. I didn't think those words are very clear. Uh, but yeah, so more accessibility, I guess, is the, yep. the meaning than diversity. So unity, doing things together, and doing things then for the sake of accessibility. Cool. I, I find it helpful to think of, I don't know if you know much about kids' ministry, but I always kind of parallel it to that. So with kids, we always have to do age-appropriate church, but then we've figured out that we lose all our kids from church because we don't have intergenerational ministry. So it's kind of like we have that tension, but it's with races instead of um, age groups. Or Yeah, so if that makes sense. Quick comment. Yeah. On that. So it's interesting that with the translation thing, because one of our Chinese congregations used to be bilingual, then it moved to Mandarin only, and so the Cantonese speakers had headsets. Mm. And they said, why are you privileging the Mandarin speakers? Yeah. When we bring friends over, they would say, why, why, do, why does that language get the privilege of us? So all of our Cantonese speakers left yeah. and went to another church, and people from the other congregations were going, well, they were Chinese. It's like, yeah, but they were different as well. So they yeah. said, we don't feel united at all. So it's just really interesting. I'm just trying to work this through in my head. Um, yeah. It is, and I think too for us... Sorry, I interrupted. Sorry. We, we think that we're being multicultural, but often our service is just Western, and we don't want to feel... We don't want to be ignorant about that, I guess. Yeah, I think that's yeah. the whole point of this whole thing, is yeah. to go, we, we think there's, you know, people are thinking that um, people are coming and having access to the gospel, but maybe there's a complexity that uh, um, stops that from happening a lot of the time. Yeah, one more feedback of what you've been talking about. We need some ideas, come on. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Right at the back again. 
just wanted to make you run. Yeah, right. I need uh, we talk. Uh, we did the same, similar thing with our Chinese service. Uh, we had Cantonese and Mandarin and English services. We combined the Chinese, and it was the other way. Uh, the Mandarin speaking uh, mainland Chinese people um, who would come into church thought it was a Cantonese service because of the style of the service. And we had back and forth translation and we tried to balance the language and who was up the front. But the style of the service was apparently, and we couldn't see at the time, um, more Cantonese and more formal in our context and what they expected. It was totally a curveball for us and we lost many people. Um, Now we do what you guys are doing, English service um, as a unifying language with translation and we try to share discomfort uh, across different cultures so we will have our creed led in Mandarin and have the English translation on the screen and go back and forth between things we have never found anything that works yeah Yeah, great (laughs) well done yeah same as us yeah yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, we try singing songs in different languages and all sorts of things. But, um, yeah, okay, um, Adam's going to come now and um, he's going to talk about his context, which is a little bit different. He'll tell us about that and um, just a bit about how this, these sort of principles apply in his context as well. Great, thanks, thanks mate. Uh, just on that last point as well, I was just thinking about uh, Sam Chan's book, Evangelism in a Skeptical World, and he makes the point that the more diverse, uh, or not, not to use not to confuse the unity diversity thing, but the more uh, heterogeneous your congregation or uh, group is, the harder it is to contextualise to any one particular group at the same time. So the risk is that you just find yourself generally ineffective to everyone, which can actually be even more difficult. Um, My my context is uh, quite different, actually, but before uh, before I tell you about that, it's just a few of my operating assumptions uh, going into it. Uh, Firstly, the church is both a theological and a sociological reality. Uh, That's important because I think sometimes we read our Bible and say, okay, this is what church should be like, and then we draw a straight linear line to our church and go, that's what it must be like. And we don't actually think through, well, what's our starting point? Where are we now? Uh, Secondly, uh, no local church can ever uh, reflect the full diversity of the universal church. So if you're a church in the middle of central China, it's going to be a bit hard to do this multi-ethnic evangelism thing. Um, And I think sometimes we can be a bit hard on ourselves that, it sounds bad, but sometimes we go for uh, multi-ethnic tokenism. So the um, find the Asian girl, the white guy, take a photo, put it on Facebook, we're a multicultural church. Uh, Or our multiculturalism is skin deep. So as long as they're represented, it's multiculturalism, but uh, on the dominant culture's terms. Uh, thirdly, uh, I think that unity, diversity, um, two-pronged principle there is really good. The question is, not should we seek to express it, but to what degree? And I think that's the difficulty, uh, that depending on our starting point, there's going to be different degrees to which and extents to which we can express that, uh, with those two principles, intention and also strengthening one another. Uh, final assumption, uh, the degree or extent of our diversity largely depends on our starting point. 
It largely depends on our starting point. Uh, so let me explain that using uh, our church's example. Uh, we just planted six months ago uh, in a suburb called Glen Waverley. Glen Waverley is highly ethnic, but not very diverse. Uh, uh, more than one half of the residents there have uh, an Asian background. Almost nine out of every ten students at the local secondary school have an Asian background as well. So, highly ethnic, but not very diverse. That's the place. Secondly, the people on our launch team, this is our starting point, the people on our launch team, the majority of them are second-generation Asian-Australian young people. Um, predominantly from Malaysia, Singapore, uh, Singapore and mainland China. We also have people from uh, second-generation Koreans, Vietnamese as part of our church as well. Finally, uh, me as a planter uh, or the pastor, I'm a second-generation Asian-Australian with a Malaysian-Chinese background. So that's really important because the people, the planter or the pastor and the place all align to give you your starting point. And what that means in our case is that we have a high degree of alignment on the accessibility side of the spectrum. So pretty much everyone is over here really easy for us on one level, like no excuses for us to be reaching the people that are like us. But at the same time, makes it really difficult when it comes to the unity side of the equation. So the question is, if that's our starting point, how then can we push in this direction? But also, if this is our starting point, we can't just like leapfrog and land in that direction either. Uh, cultural social engineering has never really worked or gone well. Uh, so how can we do, how can we make that movement in one sense in a natural way, diversity, and yet at the same time with a chastened expectation in terms of speed and timing? Uh, the way that we've thought about it uh, is two strategies, by no means the only way to do it, uh, and we're struggling on both of them. Uh, so the first one, uh, locally within our church. So Paul and Beth were saying that their context internally is very diverse. Our context internally is less diverse. So what do we do? Uh, we think about taking the next cultural step. So what's the next cultural step that we can take? Uh, it might surprise us to realise uh, that not all, all cultures stand in equal proximal relation with each other. So, for example, there is a bigger jump to go from an Asian Confucian culture to an African culture. There is a lesser jump to go from uh, an Asian culture that's Malaysian Chinese to Singapore, but it's not the same. Never confuse them. Uh, one thing that frustrates me, people come to church and they go, oh, but you're an Asian Australian church. It's awfully homogenous, isn't it? And I'm like, well, you know, Asia accounts for about one-third of the world's population, so we might look the same, but it doesn't mean we are the same. But the question is, what's the next cultural step that we can take? So predominantly Malaysian Chinese second generation. But we do have a critical mass of second generation Vietnamese in our church as well, and Koreans, and Indonesians. The, the relation, the, the, the cultural distance between us and them is closer and an easier step to take. So it may be that, as crass as it sounds, we're going to cut our losses and say, look, we're not going to try and have this wonderfully thriving ministry to Muslims in Glen Waverley because they're just not there. But actually, if there's another culture that's one cl step closer to us, can we actually be intentional about working evangelistically with those people in our church, equipping them 
to then evangelize their friends and then bring them into our church. So taking the next cultural step. But that can be awfully slow as well. So the second thing that we try and do is to think about cross-cultural church planting. So if you think about uh, concentric circles, uh, in the middle is our starting point, largely second-generation Malaysian-Singaporean guys. But if you draw the next ring out, you've probably got mainland Chinese people, second generation. And then then the next ring out, we might be thinking about Indonesians, Koreans, and Vietnamese people. So that's that's taking the next cultural step to think, uh, in one sense, within our local community, within our local church, how we'll do it. But as I said, that that can take a long time. What we'd like to do, and this is pretty idealistic, ask me in six years if this happens, what we'd like to do is to be able to then plan to door to church 10 minutes south in Springvale, where there's a lot of Aussie Vietnamese people there. And then that then forms another centre of concentric circles that can be working its way out. Because the difficulty often is, we ask ourselves, oh, why don't the other cultures come to us? Well, I think the other question is, why don't we go to them? And then from where they are, then work from within that culture to expand in one sense of diversity to take the next cultural step. So ideally for us, we'd like to go further down south uh, to Springvale to be starting with the Aussie Vietnamese people there and then thinking about concentric circles. What's the next cultural step? To go 10 minutes west to Carnegie, uh, where the Aussie Koreans are, and what's the next cultural step there? That does require us to find uh, Indigenous church planters, people that... Uh, can speak into that world. Uh, And also, even though we're at the second generation level, the advantage of finding uh, a second generation migrant to lead that is that if they can speak the local language, they can actually plant a uh, a first language congregation alongside the second language congregation, and they can have enough awareness of what's happening there linguistically to at least be able to oversee and speak into that, even if they themselves uh, can't lead it. So that's how we've sought to go about it. Imperfectly, we're six months in. Uh, it's been six years' time. Thanks, Adam. I want to go to his church. Sounds awesome. Um, um, well, what are we doing at Chester Hill? We. Again, we don't um, have the answers, but we'll just tell you what we're doing and we can interact with that. Um, when we moved to Chest Hill a few years ago, we sort of looked at the churches around us and said, oh, there's a problem. We all have this problem of not reaching our diverse community and churches. Maybe we're not doing as well as we could, etc. And we thought, well, we may, maybe we just have to try something, something different. We want to try something um, and at the very least, I guess, uh, you can probably tell from this seminar, but we wanted to... Uh, be a part of a, a new conversation, probably at least where we are, um, about how to reach diverse and particularly multi-ethnic um, churches. Um, so anyway, um, what we did is we sort of settled into the suburb for a year or so, but as we did that, we started researching what missionaries are doing overseas and particularly these famous kind of um, missiological approaches which you've probably looked into and heard of um, CPM so church planning movements and disciple making movements Uh, so there's a couple of famous-ish names if you've kind of played in that world Um, T for T gets bandied around a bit Dave Watson T for T is Ying Kai, Ying Grace Kai 
Um, Dave Watson does disciple-making movements with um, using Discovery Bible Studies. You can look them up and buy their stuff. Um, anyway, we sort of read them. There's, other, there's others out there that do disciple-making movements and um, church planning movement stuff. And so we read as wide as we could. And um, what we discovered was actually that much of it is written in a very different theological framework to us. And so um, we had to, I think we have to, and we tried to, and are trying to think hard about then, well, what does it look like uh, for us? And we boiled it down in our context, um, just as we read all this stuff, to 11 um, 11 principles. We put this little booklet together for our church people. 11 principles we felt were either biblical um, or just good wisdom, right? And then we sort of built up from there. Um, so I'll give you a quick survey of that, and then we'll return at the end to how it helps with our this principle of accessibility and unity. So at our church, we have um, uh, these small groups. We call them disciple-making communities, and they've got, a, they've got a, a particular format that we use. And they're generally fairly, as kind of has been discussed already, ours are fairly monocultural or homogenous. And the reason for that is, again, we want to leave them in their networks that naturally occur. Um, so each group has a network of non-believers around them who share their culture. Um, for example, we have, we have nine um, DMCs and a Chinese one uh, reaching mainly Chinese people and an Arabic one reaching Arabic-speaking, Vietnamese, etc., um, mums reaching mums and youth to youth and kids to kids and that sort of thing. Um, but the key in these in our disciple making, well, the key in disciple making movements that are overseas um, is that the groups learn to replicate themselves. So you see, there's a little picture in your outline there, which Beth's a fantastic artist, isn't she? Dodgy little men there, but. Um, if you can, don't worry about with the picture if you don't can't understand it. But you have these um, DMCs, I've made communities, interacting with their naturally existing networks, um, and and we help them to do that. So we have a whole bunch of ways that we help them to interact with their networks, um, and we have a format that we use in disciple making communities that is constantly building this conviction into them the convictions into them, and also equipping them with simple tools to go out. So week in, week out, they're learning these tools. And we actually think, maybe naively, but we think that we can teach each one of them, doesn't matter if they've just become a Christian or however old they are or whatever, to share Jesus widely so that they can try and find people who are open to doing a discovery Bible study with them. And we've been really surprised, actually, at how many people do and the types of people that do. So a discovery Bible study that we use is just a simple inductive study. Um, if the, the alarm bells are going at the moment, don't worry, we'll address that in a minute. But um, So we use a version of say, the Swedish method or one of those things um, and when we find someone, so everyone in a DMC, they're Christians, right? That's the first level. They're going out to try to read the Bible with people. And when they find someone, we really avoid, and this is so hard for people to 
to, to kind of resist. We avoid bringing those people into our DMC, but rather start to intentionally form new groups around them with their non-believing friends and non-believing family members, which works really well in our um, communal cultural context, but of course seems quite you know, foreign in, for us Westerners. Um, but overall, it's been working okay for us. And lots of these groups, so everyone's going out, they're being equipped to go out, and a lot of these new groups fizzle out, but some become Christians, and then they form a new group, and they graduate from a Discovery Bible study to becoming their own DMC. But the important thing is that right from the beginning, they've already started to learn a method to start to go out and start to start other DBS groups. They've been taught in a way that enables them to teach and teach others to teach. And we've also seen this happen as well. So we have a guy, as we give you an example, a guy called Tom. He's at this conference, actually, um, who leads our Chinese ministry. Um, he met Leo and his son, Eric, um, uh, and... Uh, yeah, how does it work? Leo and his son, Eric, and Hasten they joined the Chinese DMC. Um, Then what happened was Leo got trained to go out and do a discovery Bible study, so start a new group with Jason and Selena and Wayne. So we've got the DMC, someone becomes a Christian, he goes out, he started a new one, he's been coached along the way. Um, And now Jason, this is a recent example, Jason, who's not yet a Christian, but he's pretty close, he's got a big family network and he's been drummed into him right from the beginning that, hey, this is a great thing to pass on. So he's already reading the Bible with his family, even though he's not a Christian, which is amazing. Just, I don't know, he just, just loves the scriptures, I guess, and, but hasn't quite clicked. So Lord willing, he'll start a DBS with them and then... Jack, who's become a Christian, is his son. He'll probably go to school and do it with them, etc. And so we begin to have this generational growth. One person from the original DMC starting a new group, that's generation one. And then a person from that generation going out, that's generation two, etc. Um, and again, the generational growth, I think that sounds pretty weird. You can see kind of a picture of it up here in the, on the screen. Um, and they reckon in movement kind of language, you know you've got a movement when you kind of get re- regularly get to the fourth generation. So that's kind of what we're aiming to do. Um, the key to it uh, is using reproducible material, I think. So the big emphasis is for all material to be simple, to be reproduced, able to be reproduced or to pass on. So when people become believers, they know two things, right? One, they know how to run a DMC, a disciple-making community, because of the structure. The structure that we use in a DMC and a DBS is very similar. So they know how to lead a DMC, and they know how to run a DBS. Hopefully you follow the acronyms, but... They had to run a DBS with the non-believer because they've been taught this simple, reproducible, transferable um, method. And the whole point is creating something that's just easy to use. Um, Not just easy to use, but easy to pass on as well. So we don't just teach them, we teach them to teach. So another example, Beth was um, uh, coaching a church member in our uh, our youth disciple-making community and she, Ashby, started meeting with a group of non-Christian youth as well as Christian youth 
And she's really busy. She's a lawyer and she does a whole bunch of other things at church. Um, and usually she'd go, well, what am I going to do with them? I've got to do extra prep, etc." Um, Beth's kind of coaching and going, well, it's easy. Just, just do what you do in DMC, but then in the DBS format. And it was really easy for her. Um, but not only that, when one of those girls wants to read the Bible with a friend at school, she can very easily do that. Um, so it's easy for a person uh, you're doing it with. Now, that one, one last story. Um, Abby, just to kind of illustrate how it works, I suppose. Abby's a Filipino girl. She became a Christian. She joined the Mums DMC. Um, she's married to an Assyrian who has a million cousins that I have no access to whatsoever, right? Um, Abby started a Discovery Bible study with her sister Liv and Nettie, her non-Christian cousin, and what Abby does is use the material we do in DMC to do a DBS with Nettie and Liv. And the other day, it's interesting, is she, um, Liv, we, we give these um, little uh, kind of, I don't know, little booklets to help our DMC leaders, and Abby ring, rings up the person that's coaching her, Jen, and says, I've lost my leader's manual. What am I going to do? I'm just about to meet with Liv and Nettie, because um, she's just started to do it. And Jen, her coach, said to her, well, tell me, tell me what our format is. And she's like, stop, listen, go. Awesome, you know it. What's the, what's the five DBS questions? Bang, 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 because she's done it all term. And then Jen was like, you can do this. And just call me at the end, let's review it if you had any questions, etc." And she went and did it and did a really good job. Now Liv, her sister, um, she's like, I reckon I could do this with my non-Christian husband and his mates. And so she wants to do it with John Owen, etc. The thing is, right, I would never have chosen, if I just looked at the people at church, I would never have chosen Abby to be a Bible study leader. She, you know, she, yeah, so ask me more about that later. Um, but in one term, she's been convicted, equipped, and she's making disciples or make other disciples. Now, you probably go, lots of alarm bells, heresy kind of stuff going on. Beth's going to address that. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, so as Paul said, uh, there are obvious downsides to all of this. So for just picking one example, um, to make sharing the Bible really easy, to equipping people to go and do it, make it reproducible, we're using inductive studies across the board. And I did my master's thesis on Graham Goldsworthy. He's not a fan of inductive studies. And when Paul suggested, oh, maybe we should do this, I was like, I think I'm going to have to leave church. I don't think I can do this. Like, <laughs> I don't know what to do about this. Um, but, yeah, I guess the point is things that we've, places we've lost, we've had to compensate for in other areas. So I said, okay, we could give this a go if we really tighten our leadership training, if we really try, you know, do our conviction training, our biblical training, everything, if we tighten those things, we, I think we can do this. Um, because I guess the problem is an inductive study is basically a blank slate. So you can insert whatever theology you want into it. And we, we actually don't need any more syncretism in our church. So... Yeah, I don't have time to go into more detail, but there are issues and you do need to think about this, go slowly, think about where you're going to compensate it. One way we've done it is um, we kind of think about it, we have this umbrella church up the top and the other umbrellas are the other churches that we haven't planted yet, but the umbrella church and then you have your DMCs under it, you've got your Vietnamese and refugee and your mums and they kind of cross over, it's all complex like that. But 
they're all under this umbrella church, which is really providing the training, providing for the leaders, solar materials, teaching, training, gathering on Sundays, all that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, that's just how we're trying to get around some things. Anyway, you might have thought, we've wandered, wandered a long way from the path of uh, multi-ethnic evangelism, so I just want to bring it back now, bring it back to our principles that we had. Um, how does this relate? Well, one of the big things is this model, we've found, actually takes diversity really seriously. So, firstly, uh, we're raising up... No, I didn't put it on a slide, sorry. Uh, we're raising up a lot of Indigenous leaders. And as we've identified before, that's one of the key things we need. So it takes years to learn a culture, um, to share Jesus with them effectively, where people in that culture are right to go tomorrow as long as they have the right training. So um, if I meet a Chinese lady, I can introduce her to a Chinese evangelist um, to do what I can't do. So um, we're raising Indigenous leaders. Uh, the second reason why it uh, helps with accessibility is because people are learning in small groups with people they're naturally connected to. So it's following along um, existing organic uh, relationships in your community that are already there. Instead of, you know, plucking out individuals, throwing them together in a group. Um, so that really, I guess, helps with this, some of the accessibility that might miss out on at church. And, uh, yeah, so our role then is to provide the faithful resources, well-trained leaders, all that kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, while these things are really helping with the accessibility, the good part is that we're still utilising a lot of the good parts of unity, so if we had just broken off into another, you know, homogenous churches, then we wouldn't be sharing all these resources and training, working in diverse teams, um, all those kind of things that have a lot of benefits too. Um, so, yeah, and the last reason why we've chosen this model doesn't actually have anything to do with our principle. It's just uh, because of our overall aim and conviction, and that is the big... Um, the big plus is that this is all about multiplication. So multi-ethnic evangelism is really, really, really slow. <laughs> but if you can multiply yourself as a multi-ethnic body, then that's a really great thing. Um, yeah, anyway, I just want to end again. I, Paul said a few times, just reiterating. Yeah, we just want to start a conversation on these things, not a magic silver bullet or anything. Um, and yeah, again, just kind of saying one of the hardest parts for us in this journey has been a lot of the literature was a bit of a different theological flavour. Um, we've had to, I guess, adapt resources a lot and it's been very labour intensive. And I guess we don't want, um, yeah, we're keen to share resources with people. Firstly, so they don't have to start far back as we did. But secondly, we really want conversation partners to help us go forward um, and think about what are we going to do next. Uh, so, yeah, part of today we just wanted to say if you're interested in um, thinking through this stuff more, we would, we would love to be in partnership uh, with you guys too. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Is that the end? Good. Phew, it's the end. Um, questions. I think we'll have some time for questions. Um, Adam will answer questions as well. And thanks, Mark, for running around. Thanks. Uh, so a couple of questions. So resources 
resource sharing, how, how can we get access to some of those resources? Um, just come talk to us. We can email you anything. Okay. Um, and the second one is with... We need a graphic artist, by the way. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's not me. Um, with inductive Bible studies, how have you felt... Like, I've run Bible studies with kind of Iranians and Arabs, and I've found that they hate it. They're like, no, no, tell me a question, tell me the answer, teach me, don't ask me to ask the question or ask the question of the passage. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I just, I just led the Arabic one the other day. Um, I think it's just getting them used to it. So I just talk right from the beginning that, um, you know, I can't do what you can do and building that into them. But also, so it's a little bit different with the Arabic. We don't, you know, it's not as strict as, okay, let's just follow these questions. I'll pick key teaching moments, which makes them feel like I, as the pastor, am still teaching them. Um, but at the same time, really working hard to get them answering the questions and really, yeah, think, helping them to think. Um, to kind of, They don't naturally think about who they can invite. So I'll kind of say in another conversation over morning tea, oh, tell me about your family, da 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 And then I'll kind of say, oh, can we go and meet your family? And so really just helping them to do what they feel is uncomfortable but yeah difficult so I, I just try to pick some teaching moments but just go yeah we need to do this here's the reasons you can do it yeah nothing profound thanks sorry thanks hey hey um my question is uh could be a silly one i'm not sure but um I get there's a pragmatic kind of reality. You make a connection with somebody and they have a connection to a community that you don't have a connection to. And so they suddenly become a conduit through which you can inject the gospel. Um, I wonder, you might not, this might be such a pragmatic and good reality that you don't care about this, but I wonder whether you care about infusing your culture of caring for people different to you into the people who you evangelize. Do you know what I'm saying? So um, you're, uh, you have somebody of a different culture, they become a Christian, you encourage them to pass it on to their community. Do you care about whether they also care about other cultures or are you so concerned with um, reaching their community that you don't really bring it up? Um, so, yeah, I guess we're trying to follow natural existing networks and communities, which are sometimes cultural but sometimes are not. So we find that actually it's not like the Arabic ones are all Arabic. The Arabic one will jump over into the mum's one and then it will jump over into a refugee one. Because in our diverse communities, things that group people together are often much more complicated than just race or this or that. Um, So, yeah, it is very messy. And that's why I I like... It's good to be strategic, but instead of that, it's actually utilising what's naturally existing and people aren't just in one culture, so it is... Going, across, it is moving diversely. I think still, if that makes sense. And probably if they are just stuck in in their own ethnic culture, well, we always say that we're a part of a bigger thing, yeah. of this multicultural church, and that's a beautiful thing because of the unity in Christ, and you get to you know you lay down your own preferences and come and have lunch with everyone and that sort of thing. So right from the beginning, we're letting them know that, okay, yeah, this is your culture. You know the people. Well, you can do this, but you're a part of a bigger thing always push even a muslim like really the muslim they're not going to come to church right but we want them to even if it is in five ten years time because of 
I guess our ecclesiology. Yep, so that's part of it. Hi, um, my name's Ali, and um, I'm from Tasmania, um, but originally from the UK, so from quite a multicultural country there. But when I came to Tasmania 10 years ago, very, not very multicultural at all. Um, but the amazing thing that's happened in the last five years is that um, we've had a bit of an explosion in Tasmania. It's become very popular for uh, Chinese and uh, a tourist destination as well. Um, so we have had actually had a bit of a, um, yeah, we've had a number of uh, Chinese come but from other cultural backgrounds coming to our um, playgroup and then from that coming along to church. They would not, a lot of them don't know how to speak English very well. So we've just trained, um, was it nine people to do TESOL this year? Um, but I was just having a think about what you were saying about how you multiply your groups. And I was wondering how you um, make sure that um, the truth isn't being compromised. And um, I know we've had some input from one of the Chinese churches over here. Um, they were saying that uh, some of the Chinese cultures, um, they have, you have to be careful. They don't add to the gospel and they really understand the gospel. So I just wondered how you control that. Um, We've recently had the, the Eastern Lightning cult in China um, was, come and yeah. try to infiltrate our mm. DMC. So it's been interesting. Um, uh, I don't know, we could all say things on this. Um, I think uh, maybe Beth mentioned it a little bit earlier, that leadership level and um, coaching Pathways, I suppose, if you use that language, is really, really important. So I think in movements overseas, I think that is the that is the critique. It just seems to go crazy, and what and, and heresies maybe creep in. So we've gone well. We're happy for it to go slower, mm. um, and so we really work hard on making sure that our um, we we raise up coaches who can just really walk alongside them um, and have that level of leadership development where we're constantly saying, well. Yeah, yeah, and we have, we have training all over the place. Do you want to add anything to that? Well, I was just going to add, too, that um, in the movements that are overseas, um, it's not like kind of the house churches that we think of where they're just an entity out on their own. Often house churches are in a network or a group where they share, so all the pastors will come together to have theological training and practical training. And, it's yeah, it's a bit different to maybe what we think of it. Um, so, yeah, we're trying to find what that structure would look like in our context. Uh, yeah. So lots of formal training and informal training. It's very, very big on coaching. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of a tension, isn't it, because you, um, you want the gospel to go out as quickly as possible because people need to hear it but at the same time you sort of... I think, though, obviously that tension can lead us to not actually letting people go out. And so that's the important thing is to, as you coach them, to go, no... Um, you can do it. You're going to make mistakes, but we're here with you. We're not going to stop you from going out because that's, you know, it's not, not the great, uh, great suggestion. It's the great commission and all that. Um, but uh, we'll help. We'll yeah. help you. Yes. I think yeah. yeah, it's a it's a slightly different mentality. Like we're still going to pull people up if they say the wrong thing, but the mentality is to train people as they go more than train and send out. So a bit more learning as you do things too which, yeah, probably has more risk, but I think actually is a better way of learning, to be honest. So 
makes you more effective. One thing you might want to think about, even if you might not have direct visibility uh, into everything that's going on because of language barriers, if you can talk to other Chinese churches around the country, there's a capacity to actually give good Mandarin Chinese material to people. So you can actually give them material to read at right points along the way. Uh, and sometimes it's basic Christianity by John Stott or, or something even more basic than that. Uh, and then you can, e even though you might not be able to have a conversation with them to the same extent, you've at least put things in their hands that can give them a theological boundary uh, and then form them in that way. Yeah, I think you really want to trust, <laughs> trust your leaders that you can't understand. as in your Chinese pastor or whatever. Uh, this is for Paul and Beth. Thank you for sharing. Um, really helpful. I did have a question about your preaching on Sundays. So with uh, the umbrella, sorry, is that the term, the umbrella gatherings or all-in gatherings, um, how has that affected the way in which you explain the gospel? So in terms of, for example, I'm thinking about the difference in terms of understanding sin in a Western conception of guilt and an Eastern conception of shame, uh, the are Hopefully you understand what I'm asking with this question. How would that affect the way in which you explain the gospel, understanding there are so many different cultures in the same room? Yeah, I think um, Beth's been doing some study in, in that area of the different types of um, ways of learning and culture, etc. so she can probably speak to that. But um, I think it should, but we haven't... Um, if you came to our church, you wouldn't notice a big difference. I think you should, but we, 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 we just have found it really difficult to do. And so the easy things to do are probably the token things, which are just use lots of illustrations and um, et cetera. I mean, try to think about, yeah, who our audience is. The other thing is really difficult is because there's such a diversity. Um, so you can explain sin in a particular way, but there's a whole bunch of people who miss out on that. You know, yeah, so I don't know. Yeah, we don't, I don't think we do it well at all. Jonathan. Well, I was just going to say, too, one of the things we're really grappling with at the moment will be if the next umbrella we church we plant will be in English or Chinese or what. So that could be another way that we um, address it. But, yeah, I, I think that the reality is that I just don't know how to do a multicultural service because it's too complicated. <laughs> yeah, we're ready to give up. No, not really, not really. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, it's good to always make sure you have different people represented up the front, lots of stories, lots of... Yeah, but it's, I, to be honest, sometimes a lot of those things do feel a bit superficial other than just helping people yeah. feel a part of it in terms yeah, of... Yeah, it's hard to maturing. come to that, I think, because our, our church looks, looks beautiful. Like, it's really... It's like this vibrant, lots of different cultures, but we've had to, as we've had this church planning conversation, go, hmm, <laughs> maybe no one's understanding what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hey, just a, just a pragmatic question about um, the DMCs and the yep. DBSs. Um, so, so you've got so DM, DMCs are like your Bible studies yep. that you were referring to before in the scenario. So, yep. yeah, group. Um, so, so the DMCs are Bible studies with a view of sending people out on mission for DBSs, and then when someone goes out into a DBS, they're still part of that. DMC, and then, yeah, that's kind of the vision and how it works. Yep. Yep, yep. Yeah, that's the vision of how it works, but it's 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 not only mission. So in the DMC, we use a format, it's a three-thirds, so we, we stop, listen, go. So stop is just praying for each other and accountability. Um, so at the end of it, so I'll get back to 
it gets kind of circular, but that's stop. Um, and then listen is we, uh, we read the Bible. We have another acronym, which is just teaching people basic exegesis. It's more than just the simple questions of DBS. We really want to teach people to read the Bible for themselves. Um, and then in the go section is application, but also just really helping each other uh, to know, to, to yeah, helping each other go out with the gospel and stuff, these DBSs. So we have different activities that we do, whether it's sharing testimonies or going, hey, what, what was difficult about Kevin? What was hard for you reaching Jono this week? And, oh, I don't know what to do. And everyone would be like, oh, yeah, we know what to do. Let's, let's help each other. Um, yeah, and then we come back and do stop and go, Kevin, how'd you go with reaching whatever? So that's the format that we use, stop, listen, go. Um, but uh, so there's some maturity in there, but really intentionally a third of the time helping each other to be better equipped to go out. Yep. So it's quite it's quite taxing. Like you're in a Bible study and you're expected to go and start a DBS. Um, yeah. Lots of people in these movements end up going bivocational or supporting themselves. So we have a bit of culture of that at the church now already, people um, dropping back a few days to do things. So, yeah, it is quite radical. <laughs> yeah. I've got a question for Adam. Uh, Adam, I know that you uh, speak Mandarin very fluently. Um, if you ever had a lot of uh, Mandarin-speaking people joining your church, would you ever consider running a bilingual service? Um, why, why not? We'd love to hear your thoughts on that, brother. General thoughts on bilingual services. Uh, They're often short-term solutions. So the experience of Chinese churches in Australia, in every capital city, as you well know, Elliot, has been uh, that bilingual services have a lifetime of the first generation uh, in order to keep the second generation, their kids, within church. But then it's not so much the linguistic difficulties that are there. It's actually the cultural difficulties that come with it. Because what most of the time happens is... Um, you've got a parent-child relationship between the first and the second language. And so that's what creates a lot of conflict and difficulty, which is that you don't just have two cultures, nor just two and a half cultures. You actually have two cultures. The the nature of their relationship is asymmetrical already. Uh, So I think a bilingual service with live translation from the front, uh, it it can work, but I, I probably wouldn't be planning on it for too long. Yeah. G'day, I'm Janet. Uh, my husband and I are from Brisbane. He's my ministry support partner. Uh, I am the uh, multicultural ministry worker at uh, Southside Presbyterian. So, a couple of questions. Um, was your context always multi ethnic, or you sort of hinted at arriving and going, mm, there's not a lot of yeah, <laughs> reflection here? It's very political. <laughs> yeah, and uh, if not, how did you go from, you know, not very much or nothing to where you are now? Uh, so the existing church was a group of 20 older racist Anglos. I hope they don't watch the video. Um, <laughs> you can, not all of them. Some of them, they're, sorry. I should, but you know what I mean, right? Just a classic. Yeah, it's a, it's a white church. They've struggled with the change in, um, the, the change in our suburb. Uh, so what we did is everyone's like, oh, just we, we, we gathered a small team of a small diverse team um, and went to Chester Hill. Everyone said, just go and join them. It'll be really encouraged, encouraging for them. Sounded like a disaster. So we planted one beside 
it's at a different time. Uh, so we've tried to love and teach and look after the 845 folk um, quite separately, I guess, um, whilst starting this new multicultural thing. Um, it's been difficult. There's lots of tensions, lots of problems. It's constant change management. Um, I've learnt lots, um, cried lots. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, but the suburb... Uh, the church now reflects the suburb. So the yeah. suburb was always multicultural when we were there. I think that's a big part is having a leadership team that is diverse. Yeah. yeah so yeah. trying to... I mean, you can't force that, obviously, but, it, yeah. I, I, was going to, I was wondering, you said you brought a diverse team in. How diverse was it vis-a-vis the cultural diversity of Chester Hill? We tried as hard as we could, but no one to come. <laughs> so uh, it didn't really. We had a subcontinental, which we have no subcontinentals. Um, some Asians, which is fantastic. Um, no, Arabic. no Arabic, no Vietnamese. Yeah, which is. But the thing is, like, I think again, it sounds a bit token, but it did look multicultural. I think that really mattered to start with. Um, and not only that, everyone, everyone's, or a lot of people had a different cultural background. So coming in, they just understood the complexities of multiculturalism and actually loved the idea of seeing the gospel go out into these cultures. I'm doomed. Um, <laughs> we are very white. Uh, another question, last one, and I'll pass it on. Um, with your Discovery Bible Studies, I'm doing a version of that. Um, what passages do you concentrate on? I'm having a discussion with my ministry yep. mission pastor, and he's going, go, Luke, you want to get Jesus right from the beginning. And yep. I've been going bus trip through the Bible, Genesis to Jesus, as quickly and but logically as I can. Yep. What, what's your experience? Uh, but it possibly depends on who the person is and what religious background. So say a Muslim might be, might be a hindrance to start with Jesus, might be easier to start with the, like what you're doing, the Old Testament, and work your way to Jesus. Um, we just we offer two, so we've developed seven stories um, that goes from Genesis to Revelation um, and Mark. So we've chosen Mark because it's short. It talks about Jesus. Um, probably just as well could choose, what did you say, Luke? Oh, actually, no, I think it was probably Mark. Sorry. <laughs> okay, yeah. I think Mark's, Mark's shorter. You can get it in. The, the tension is also you want to... We do seven weeks. By the end, if somebody's not keen, seven weeks is a long time to keep going. But you want to get through the whole gospel. Uh, question for Adam. You, you mentioned some of the challenges of having multicultural and that you end up so general you don't reach anyone. We, we've got sort of a similar sort of thing where established church new demographic moving in. Do you have any advice for how to appropriately keep them in mind even as I have a majority congregation? And in particular, I guess, Chinese background, mainland Chinese people. Uh, so I don't completely miss them, as we sort of talked about. Yeah. Yeah, in your congregation, do you have people that are Chinese background already? or We've picked up a couple second generation because their kids are better at English than they are at Chinese and so we're starting to get that sort of movement which has helped a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean it will depend, I mean with those guys uh, reaching their parents is going to be a really important thing Uh, and the idea of family evangelism is really important Uh, and so often we we focus on individuals evangelistically but we need to be thinking in terms of whole families. Uh, but are, are those, you said the mainland Chinese people, are they in the church? A couple. A couple. I think it's, people always say that you want to preach as if non-Christians are there. And I think if you're thinking about 
a particular type of person that you're trying to reach, preach as if they're there. Uh, and uh, understanding them, getting to know them. Uh, the, I mean, illustrations are the easiest way to go with preaching you know, on one level, but I think um, understanding their deepest needs is really important. So, I mean, I'm a big Sam Chan fan. I think his stuff uh, in that book that he wrote is really helpful as a grid of thinking about it. The more you can understand and appreciate the importance of family... Uh, I think the more helpful it'll be. So we actually, uh, at our church, use uh, the household family language for pretty much everything at church. Uh, we, we talk about, we don't say church community, we talk about church family, uh, and actually framing our relationships in that grid actually makes a really big difference. Uh, one more question. Anybody? <laughs> Wrong. Get fit. Uh, you mentioned that you guys are uh, singing in different languages together. How do you do that? Um, no, how do, no, how do you I guys do that? I can demonstrate if you want. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. Um, where do you find resources for that? And uh, what has worked that's been valuable and what, uh, what hasn't? Um... So how do we do that? Uh, we have people who can sing in different languages, so their own language. Well, actually, we have a, we have a lady that um, just learns different languages as well in songs, so she doesn't necessarily understand it, but she's just good at pronouncing the words, so she, and she's an amazing singer. So she'll learn an Arabic song and, and sing a verse. It's just crazy. And they reckon it sounds exactly right. So that's just a, a, a blessing to have her with that gift. And then... Um, another one, so we're doing, uh, Tom, he's got a, um, just sometimes plays a song on YouTube, um, the Chinese love, um, and so that's worked. But most songs are just Western songs we've translated. We haven't actually... Yeah, there's heaps of, where, where do you get the resources from? There's, we've got thousands of songs from Arabic churches and Chinese churches that have, like, common songs between the cultures that have words, so I can connect you up with those but really I mean again ours is so diverse so we don't have a dominant culture so singing an Arabic song again it feels nice but there's only like 10 people that love it which is okay we love those 10 people but yeah and yeah and then the other time we have all the time we have written words in English Chinese and Arabic um, so they can at least read the words if, they, if, if it fits I don't know but yeah. Can you guys give these a round of applause just to sort of thank them? <laughs> these guys have, have all put a lot of work into their stuff, so uh, I'm sure they'll happily answer more questions as, uh, as the conference rolls around. Uh, but just give them a bit of time just to relax, and you guys should do the same and grab some afternoon tea as well. <laughs>